This is the podcast ICU Rounds. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. I'm an associate professor of surgery and director of the Burn Center at the Vanderbilt University School of Medicine in Nashville, Tennessee. Welcome back to the podcast. The topic that we're going to talk about today is that of cardiac output monitors. And I want to talk specifically about some of the physiological principles that are used in the different cardiac monitors and try to compare the different monitoring techniques based on the physiology that's involved. So that if monitor A is better than monitor B, perhaps you need to understand what are the physiological methods that determines cardiac output or preload, and what are the, some of the shortcomings and strengths of those various methods. The first question you need to really ask yourself is, what is it that I want to measure? And what is it that I'm trying to make better on the patient? If I have a patient who is in shock, and we've gone over this over and over again, that shock isn't necessarily defined by a blood pressure. It's really defined by oxygen delivery. How is it that I can improve oxygen delivery to, say, the brain, heart, or kidneys? Is it, do I need to improve the mean arterial blood pressure? Do I need to improve cardiac output? Do I need to improve oxygen delivery? So what is it precisely that we want to measure in a particular patient at a particular time? And how about how is it that we go about measuring that particular item? Now, the different monitoring devices, it's crucial to understand what is really being measured or monitored. Uh, you can look at various monitors, and they may give you a cardiac output on a particular patient of, say, 3. Or if you're looking at a preload surrogate, and that's a word that we're going to use over and over again, a surrogate of preload, uh, how is it being, what is it that it's actually measuring? And what are some of the physiological conditions that it's relying on? And what physiological conditions or pathological conditions is going to make that measurement more or less accurate? And then what are the values and weaknesses that needs to be understood prior to clinical decision-making? Um, I, I have a business degree. I love the study of economics. And in economics, one of the things they teach you is ask questions that are relevant to the decision. So your decision may be in the management of somebody who's critically ill. Do I give them blood? Do I give them a vasopressor? Do I give them fluids? And you want to be asking questions that are going to help you make those decisions. Aggregating data that doesn't really help you make decisions or, or doing procedures to patients that aren't going to drive your decision-making is really just kind of a waste of time, and it really puts the patient at potential harm because a lot of these different techniques are invasive in one form or another, whether it's a PA catheter or a device that uses an arterial catheter or something even like an esophageal Doppler monitor. Now we're going to get back to this issue of monitoring of surrogates. And again, we look at different things to give us an estimation of how well or poorly a, pa a particular patient is doing. It may be the arterial uh, blood pressure or the venous blood pressure, the patient's acid-base balance, the patient's urinary output, or things that are a little bit more elaborate, such as oxygen delivery, oxygen content, oxygen consumption. Now, I, I always, you know, I think we overuse the uh, use of aviation examples in, in healthcare, but, you know, I, I'm looking at a photograph of the cockpit of a modern airliner, Boeing 777. And when you look at this this instrument panel in this cockpit, a flight deck, whatever it is that we call, you see innumerable uh, screens with all kinds of data and all kinds of switches and heads-up displays and so forth. And you hope that the pilot, as he's taking this plane and flying it through space at 500 miles an hour, 
as a passenger in the back, we are hopeful and confident that the person who's sitting and controlling that aircraft understands what all of that data means and what it represents and how to use it to make his decisions to make a safe flight for all of us. I'm not so convinced that we have that same amount of of um, use of data in a modern intensive care unit. It is not surprising that when you see somebody who has a pulmonary artery catheter, um, there are elements of data that are on those display screens that people aren't familiar with. They don't know what those numbers represent. They don't know how they're calculated, and they don't know how to use them in clinical decision-making. To me, that's much like a pilot of this aircraft not knowing or only knowing some of the uh, instruments. You know, what, what do you expect your pilot to know? Well, the altimeter, the compass, you know, the, the speed of the aircraft. Well, there are people who uh, manage patients who have PA catheters, for instance, and the only data points that they're interested in at all are things like the wedge, uh, or if you're going to be a purist, the pulmonary occlusive pressure, the cardiac output, maybe the SVO2. And they ignore all the other data points that we get that are helpful. Uh, in clinical decision-making. Are, are they imperfect? No, but they do provide information that is helpful and relevant in decisions and regarding patients who are critically ill. So if you're going to be using these devices, I would certainly um, recommend uh, that you understand what all of the data is for and, and how it can help you make decisions in managing critically ill patients. Now, when we get to cardiac output monitoring, we've talked in the last two podcasts in regards to particularly like lactic acidosis about oxygen debt. And we said this over and over again that ox- shock is defined by uh, oxygen consumption that exceeds our oxygen delivery. And this creates the idea of oxygen debt. How can we improve oxygen delivery? Well, there's issues of perfusion or flow. And, you know, we've, we've said before what the equations of oxygen delivery are. Is oxygen delivery is the delivery, the content of arterial oxygen, and we multiply that product times the cardiac output. So one of the things if we're having somebody in debt is we can improve flow to the organ that is in shock. And, and typically the big three organs that we concern about a lot in shock are brain, heart, and kidneys. So cardiac output is clearly one of the, the, the key drivers of determining adequate oxygen delivery. Now, there's this, this traditional fixation that we have in in cardiovascular modern intensive care units, and that's on the pulmonary occlusive pressure or the wedge. And the general thought is is that I increase my pulmonary occlusive pressure, that increases my cardiac output, and by doing so, I'm going to increase my delivery of oxygen to peripheral tissues. And that's the assumption that most people operate on. That is not an assumption that always holds true. Now let's talk about our trusty old friend, the pulmonary artery catheter. I like pulmonary catheters. I think a lot of my residents and the fellows think that I I hate pulmonary catheters. Um, I like them. Uh, I I don't think that they're inherently evil. I I do think that there is a a lot of data that lack that they make a difference in outcomes. And, you know, I don't want to make this actual podcast about PA catheters or the pros or the cons. When you talk about what the cons are, I'm not sure whether it's the piece of plastic or the people actually interpreting the data. And if you change the pulmonary catheter for another technology, I'm not sure you're going to see improved outcomes either because if the rate-limiting step is the provider, the provider is going to basically transition with your technology. But the PA catheter has been used for about 40 years. It provides direct measurements of surrogates. 
It doesn't provide direct measurements of what we really want to know about the patient. Now, what are these surrogates? And here's that word, and we're going to keep using that over and over and over again. The pulmonary artery occlusive pressure, the central venous pressure, the cardiac output, and the mixed venous saturation. Let's focus on these a little bit more. It's just, you know, on the, the pulmonary artery occlusive pressure. Most providers just focus on that one number, the pulmonary artery occlusive pressure, the wedge. And we've talked about wedges in the past. There's other podcasts on it. But the general assumption by focusing on the wedge is that if I provide the patient with fluid, that will increase the pulmonary artery occlusive pressure, and that's going to increase the blood pressure of the urine output. They're not even looking at the cardiac output. Typically what happens is someone gets a call and the patient's blood pressure is soft or the urine output is inadequate. The patient may get a, a, a liter or two of fluid challenge, and then it's decided, well, you know what? We don't know enough about what's going on with this patient. Let's insert a pulmonary artery occlusive pressure, or let's, let's insert a wedge or a, a PA catheter and get a wedge. Now, what is the idea behind the wedge is that we're increasing the preload. And where does all this come from? Remember back in, in freshman co- uh, year of college and we took an isolated frog leg and we put load on it, basically trying to, to uh, optimize the overlay of actin and myosin. And by doing that, we're going to increase twitch. The only actionable pulmonary catheter uh, variable that people use, in most part, is the wedge. And they're not looking at what it does to delivery. They're not looking at what it does to cardiac output. They're only choosing these output, these outcome measurements of blood pressure and urine output. Now, you may be different. You may be more sophisticated, I think, than perhaps the average bear. But the reality is, is most people are looking at blood pressure and urine output. So the assumption goes, increase the wedge, I'll increase the cardiac output. Well, that isn't true. Because what happens is I increase the wedge, I increase the preload, and it's the preload that increases the cardiac output. We're missing that principal step there. And again, what's happening is we're thinking as by increasing the pulmonary occlusive pressure, I'm going to create an optimal overlap of the actin and myosin in the cardiac muscle. And by doing that, I'm going to increase my contractility and my twitch and, or, or in, in regards to my stroke volume as well. And that's going to improve cardiac output. Let's draw, drive down on this a little bit harder. So... Am I saying that pulmonary occlusive pressure is my, my, my cardiac preload? And the answer is no. No, what, what it is is a wedge is a sum of forces. Okay, it's a vector. And what I mean by that is it's measuring the, the, when I put up the balloon, it's measuring the pressure in that proximal pulmonary artery, which for all intents and purposes is miles away from that left ventricle. It's going all the way through. It's got to go all the way through the pulmonary uh, arterial system, down into the alveolar and the capillary system, back through the pulmonary vein system, back to the heart, through the left atrium, past the valve, and into the left ventricle. So it's a, it's a pretty big surrogate. And what we're, we really wanted to do is we, we're trying to predict, when we blow up that balloon, we're trying to estimate the left ventricular end diastolic pressure. And it's that left ventricular end diastolic pressure that we're trying to use as another surrogate of preload. So pulmonary occlusive pressure is a surrogate of left ventricular end diastolic pressure. Well, is, is left ventricular end diastolic pressure the actual preload of the left ventricle? No. Because the left ventricle preload is not determined by left ventricular end diastolic pressure. It's determined by left ventricular end diastolic volume. Well, what is the relationship between pressure and volume? 
Well, the relationship between pressure and volume is known as compliance, right? So as we change the volume of something, it changes the pressure. And that relationship, the change, change of pressure over change of volume, is the mathematical equation, or basically, or a mathematical explanation for what's called compliance. Well, ventricular compliance is nonlinear. What I mean by that is that it's actually an exponential curve. So if I take somebody's wedge, we'll just use that because it's almost a wedge. It almost seems like a vernacular term. I almost feel like I need to apologize for using it. But if I take somebody's wedge from, say, 10 to 15, that is not going to increase the left ventricular and diastolic volume or the preload the same amount if I took that wedge from, say, 15 to 20, even though that represents a, a change of 5. Because as I go from 15 to 20, my left ventricle is getting less compliant. So the pressure is going up at a faster rate, and so the volume change is not as dramatic. So you have a nonlinear relationship between pressure and volume. The other thing is there's multiple factors that are involved in determining ventricular compliance. First of all, you would not assume for a moment that everybody has the same ventricular compliance. If I took two patients within an intensive care unit and I say, this patient is a young 18-year-old athlete who is in a motor vehicle crash and for some reason he has a PA catheter, you would not say, for instance, that he has the same left ventricular compliance of, say, a 70-year-old who's had a previous myocardial infarction as well as left ventricular concentric hypertrophy. You wouldn't say it for a second. So we have intra-unit variability in compliance. Well, we also have intra-patient variability in compliance because there are things that happen to patients over time that are going to change their ventricular compliance. Now, we've already said, say, myocardial infarction. Okay, that'll change ventricular compliance. Well, what are the other things that will change ventricular compliance? Well, you may see change in compliance over time just based on where they are on their pressure volume curve. You may see change in compliance based on the use of inotropic agents. You may see increase in ventricular compliance based on the presence or absence of sepsis or tachycardia. So you have interpatient variability in ventricular compliance and intrapatient variability in ventricular compliance. So again, we said it all comes down to we want to manage patients. So will a cardiac output increase with volume loading? So you're taking a patient from a wedge of 12 to 16. So imagine now you're at the bedside. Will cardiac outputs responsive to increase in your pulmonary artery occlusive pressure or wedge with a fluid challenge? Well, give the fluid challenge, measure the cardiac output. If not, you get fluid complications. So that's what you really need to be doing is people will give fluid. So we'll drive their wedge from 14 to 16. Okay, that's great. What did it do to the cardiac output? Well, their wedge went to 16. That's great. What does that do to flow? I don't know. Because we're not really trying to... Just changing somebody's wedge pressure is not going to improve DO2 or delivery. We want to know how that impacted the cardiac output, how that improved flow. This gets into something we call fluid-responsive cardiac output recruitment. Say it again. Fluid-responsive cardiac output recruitment. As we get into some of these other, say, non-invasive cardiac output techniques, we really have to look at the ventilation in the cardiac cycle. And in our, some of our talks on positive pressure ventilation, we say people suck and ventilators blow. And I say that in kind of a vernacular kind of sense because I want to get your attention, but it, it will. That under normal physiological conditions, what happens is, is you suck air in when you ventilate. And so what happens is you drop your diaphragm, you increase the volume of your thoracic volume. That creates a pressure gradient. Air goes from area of high pressure to low pressure. We learn that 
That's high school science right there. Now, when you've got somebody on a ventilator, that physiology is turned basically on its head. 180 degrees is that rather than putting air into your thorax by negative pressure or sucking it in, the ventilator blows it in under positive pressure. Now, this reversal, this is an absolute reversal of the normal physiological process. And there are cyclic changes in venous return with the stroke volume. So, for instance, when I take a deep breath... What happens is my thorax, the pressure is getting more negative. That's how air is moving in. But what happens to venous return as I drop my diaphragm and I increase my thoracic volume and I make the, my intrathoracic pressure more negative? Well, it's actually increasing venous return. When I put somebody on a positive pressure ventilation and I'm pumping my thorax full of air, what does it do to my, deep, my intrathoracic volume? Um, or my venous return, it's actually decreasing it. Very simple physics. It's, it's all vectors. So knowing these interactions can be useful to predict fluid responsiveness in hypovolemic patients. We can use some of this to be predictive in positive pressure ventilation. So for instance, if we inflate somebody's lungs, that's going to increase the filling of the left heart. Because why? We're basically filling up the lungs, we're increasing uh, blood return uh, from the pulmonary uh, venous system and filling the left side of the heart. But we compress the vena cava and that's going to decrease the right heart fill. So this gives us some dynamic physiological parameters that are being used by some of these monitors and that's what's called the pulse pressure variation and the stroke volume variation. Now pulse pressure, you'll remember, is the difference between the systolic and the diastolic blood pressure. So you're going to see that number vary uh, as we go through the respiratory cycle. The same is true of the stroke volume, is that as we go through a respiratory cycle, we're going to see alterations in stroke volume variation. Focusing on the pulse pressure variation, cyclic variations of left ventricular stroke volume during the ventilator cycle. Now, arterial pulse pressures, you know, this is mentioned in ATLS. It's, it is really important. It's just not a curiosity that somebody uh, is going to torture somebody on rounds. And it, as we said, it's the difference between the systolic and the diastolic blood pressure. Now, arterial uh, pulse pressure is directly proportional to the stroke volume. It's indirectly proportional to arterial compliance. So as our pulse pressure goes up, our stroke volume can potentially go up. Um, and we see as a decrease in pulse pressure, we're going to see a decrease in the stroke volume. Uh, also, as our pulse pressure goes up, our arterial compliance goes down. There's mathematical formulas that are used to demonstrate that. Now, pulse pressure uh, variation in fluid responsiveness. Fluid responders will increase their cardiac output uh, by greater than 15%. So if somebody has, uh, if they have a pulse pressure variation, you can they have a, you can use that to predict who is going to be responsive to fluids. And so, if they have a cardiac output of 2.2 liters per minute, we'll increase that to roughly 2.53 liters per minute. And again, pulse pressure variation predicts recruitable cardiac output to fluids in septic patients, as well as those patients with acute lung injury. Now, the number of stroke volume variation. Stroke volume variation is determined by what's called analysis of contour arterial pulse contour. This gets into some fancy mathematics, but it uses area under the curve of the systolic phase of the arterial waveform for beat-to-beat determination of stroke volume. And, you know, basically the stroke volume variation is you take your stroke volume maximum minus your stroke volume minimum, divide that by the mean, Multiply it by 100, it basically gives you a percent. Now, a stroke volume variation of less than 10%, 
basically indicates that a fluid challenge will not increase the cardiac output. Okay, so if you have a stroke volume variation of greater than 10%, then by administration of fluids, you may actually improve cardiac output, and by doing that, improve flow, improve oxygen delivery. Now, there's limitations to some of these dynamic parameters. One is you really need to be on positive pressure ventilation. Um, As far as sedation and ventilation, it's only been really validated on deeply sedated or paralyzed patients, And, and certainly we know how things are going in intensive care units, uh, nowadays is that we're using less deep sedation than we have in the past. Cardiac rhythms, uh, in certain cardiac rhythms, this becomes problematic, mostly in those patients who have atrial fibrillation. And you can have problems with chest wall compliance for all the reasons we've already stated. That could be a problem in somebody who has, say, multiple rib fractures, somebody's got, you know, contusions, uh, somebody who has chest wall burns or circumferential chest wall burns. Those can all create problems with uh, pulmonary compliance. Now, focusing uh, for the next few on cardiac output measurements, you know, this is typically the, the method that we use for determination of cardiac output is the transpulmonary thermal dilution technique. Basically, that volume is equal to flow times the mean circulation time. Uh, when an indicator is injected into the vascular space, it's quickly diluted by the flowing blood. The indicator that we typically use in the past has been cold water, ice water, uh, but now the newer swans are heating up blood on the proximal portion of the PA catheter, so it's using heated blood. And flows determine how quickly or slowly the dilution of it takes place. So basically, if I've got 10 gallons of water and I take, you know, 10 cc's of a very concentrated uh, dye and I dump it into this 10 gallons of water, I take out 10 cc's, I know the concentration of that, I should be able to calculate out what the entire volume of um, um, both the, the 10 cc's and the 10 liters. Now, there's something called PICO, P-I-C-C-O. And in PICO, you inject 10 to 15, excuse me, you inject 15 to 20 uh, milliliters of cooled saline in the central vein. And, um, and basically, you're able to detect cardiac output uh, measured in a central artery. Now, when we think about transpulmonary cardiac output, it's a little bit broader and lower magnitude curves that you see, um, in a, you know, that attained by, say, a PAC more vulnerable to error and baseline drift, and it's less uh, uh, vulnerable to errors caused by respiratory drift. So, again, one of the problems using what we call it, because it's considered transpulmonary cardiac output determination, uh, more vulnerable to errors from baseline, less uh, vulnerable to errors by respiratory drift. I already mentioned some about the pulse contour analysis uh, that, you know, some people see this uh, in intensive care units. It's actually very, very cool technology. And it's new. It's whiz-bang. I don't quite understand it. This was first described by Otto Frank in 1899. And Frank of the Frank-Starling curve, his goal was to determine cardiac output from arterial pressures. So, you know, the people who initially started the investigations of determination of cardiac outputs, this is what they wanted to do. Erlinger and Hooker in 1904, cardiac output, they determined was proportional to arterial pulse pressure. So this notion that... These pulse contour monitors are something new. I don't understand it. You know, therefore, by default, uh, it's not reliable. You know, come on, get get past it. First of all, very few people could tell me the mathematical principles that are, you know, behind a thermal dilution curve. Almost nobody can. So the fact that you don't, you can't recite all the math associated with picos or pulse contour analysis just isn't valid. The other thing is this: the technology that we're using is new. But the theories and the, philosoph- the physiological principles uh, that are 
behind pulse contour analysis are well-founded and have been around for over 100 years. So what you have when these things is you've got a thermal dilution catheter and a lumen for arterial pressure measurement. And, um, and you have an arterial pressure transducer and you have a central venous catheter. And you can measure thermal dilution the catheters at various points um, in the body. But what you see is you're basically calculating areas under the curve. And using, and again, anybody who's ever taken calculus has, has studied area under the curves, and that helps you determine the cardiac output. And again, it's a pulse contour analysis. It's invasive. It needs an arterial and a venous line. So, you know, this isn't like it's a non-invasive approach. You know, pulmonary catheter is, you know, this, these PICO monitors are as well. The indicator dilution technique for cardiac output determination, like I said, the PA catheter looks at temperature across the right heart. Pulse, pulse contour looks at transpulmonary indicator dilution. Okay, so it's going from the right side to, into the left side. Injection, uh, venous, and measurement on the systemic artery. Uh, indicators are cold temperature and, and lithium. Uh, and used to calibrate arterial waveforms. So some of these use cold temperature. The ones we actually use use lithium. Now, the pulse contour and looking at left ventricular stroke volume, basically we know there, there's mathematics involved in this that we can basically uh, describe. It would be an absolutely horribly boring podcast, and I'm probably boring you to tears already. But basically we're looking at volume and pressure changes, and we can also get things like aortic compliance. You measure blood pressure and blood flow simultaneously, and again, it's a transpulmonary thermal dilution and arterial blood pressure me- measurement. The lithium dilution, these are sometimes known as LITCO monitors. Uh, you inject a small dose of lithium through a central or peripheral vein. The ion washes out by a sensor attached to a peripheral arterial line. You've got to calibrate this uh, as well so you get adequate numbers on this. And you're looking at things like the stroke volume variation and the pulse pressure variation that we mentioned earlier. So you have a cardiac output, you have a stroke volume, and then you've got the stroke volume variation and pulse pressure variation. Now, limitations of the lithium uh, technique is you can't rely on patients who are lithium therapy. So if somebody is bipolar and they're on lithium, obviously you can't use it. The values drift in patients who are on certain muscle relaxant infusions, and it requires recalibration about every eight hours. If you have arrhythmias, just like if you're using a uh, PA catheter that's calculating EDVI, um, this technique is is not as reliable. And perhaps the other limitation of the lithium techniques is everybody just whining that they missed my wedge. Uh, Your comfort is, you know, obviously we want people to embrace technology being comfortable using it, but because you're comfortable with it doesn't necessarily mean it's a technique that we should continue. There are all kinds of new uh, Doppler monitors out there. We used to have a a soft gel Doppler monitors. Now there are uh, very... uh, low-impact uh, Doppler monitors by looking at supersternal windows and subzoified type things. Uh, and they calculate blood velocity as determined by Doppler. And you look at systolic time and aortic cross-sectional area, and that can help you determine stroke volume. The issues with these are they're not continuous. Uh, they rely on an aortic cross-sectional area. Um, and there is things like blood flow loss from the upper extremities, which is estimated about 30%. This issue of aortic cross-sectional area, some have actually been able to actually measure this. Some have relied on nomograms. And there seems to be a lot of variability, uh, inter-observer and intra-observer, based on the angle of the Doppler beam. So, you know, this is a, a good technique. Uh, it will provide you a, a rapid look as to what's going on. Uh, but the, it does also have its uh, shortcomings. 
There's also issues like with uh, um, techniques, partial carbon dioxide rebreathing. And this is kind of slick because it monitors the respiratory carbon dioxide. And it basically, it's an application of the FIC principle. And by using conservation of mass, enables you to determine the cardiac output. It has a heavy reliance on the stability of carbon dioxide production and ventilation to help produce the cardiac output. Basically, the equation turns out that your cardiac output is can be calculated by using the FIC principle of looking at your change in CO2 consumption over a change in the content of arterial CO2. And by doing that math, you can actually use the partial carbon dioxide rebreathing to determine cardiac output. That's pretty cool stuff. But I have absolutely no personal uh, history with its use, so I'm sure that it has all kinds of of issues and shortcomings. But uh, it's interesting to know that... um, it's out there. And when you look at the math, the, the mathematics and the formulas are actually, it's, it's pretty intense stuff. Lastly, there's thoracic electrical bioimpedance monitors. These are kind of cool. The, the theory behind this is that various tissues conduct electricity with different efficiencies. And blood conducts tissue very well. Fat and air conduct it poorly. And as blood flows into the aorta and pulmonary vasculature, the ability of electricity to flow through the thorax changes that can be measured. So blood volume change with each cardiac cycle can then be used to basically calculate out what the stroke volume is. Now, you can certainly imagine that a technology like this would have its limitations. Uh, Certainly, there's motion artifacts, issues with arrhythmias that the other monitoring devices have, pulmonary edema, pleural effusions, massive resuscitation, um, can uh, alter this. What was interesting is that when you find these articles, you actually, the articles would suggest that it's not really affected by opening the chest. And some people have looked at this uh, during cardiac surgery uh, while they've had uh, uh, catheters in. And I think I find that fabulous, that, or not fast, fabulous, but fascinating that an open chest doesn't degrade these measurements. You've been listening to IC Rounds. My name is Jeffrey Guy. Just as a reminder that you can carry all the episodes of IC Rounds uh, in your mobile device. There is an app uh, that you can uh, maintain uh, all of them on on-demand download. Um, even the archived ones that have been archived now for several years. Some of the older ones that are about three or four years out, just be mindful. It does take the servers a little bit of time to perhaps pull them out. They're not as as rapidly as, as the ones that are you know the past year current loads. The other thing is you can also download the most recent, uh, the most recent episode of IC Rounds uh, using Stitcher. Uh, keeps the most recent one on there as well. Check out the other podcasts, uh, Pharmacology for the Pre-Hospital Professional, for those of you uh, who work in the pre-hospital and emergency environment. Also, if you want to help us out, the positive feedback that you leave at the iTunes uh, store is very, very helpful. The podcast is free. We like to continue that, keeping it free, and that positive feedback is extraordinarily helpful. Thanks for downloading. Have a great day.